Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Michael Martone, Dinty Moore, Elena Passarello, and Sue Williams Silverman. You will now hear Dinty Moore provide introductions. My name is Dinty W. Moore. Welcome. The plan today is all four of us will speak, discuss, perhaps demonstrate uh, what we're theming this panel around, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a second. And we're certainly going to leave time for you to disagree with us, attack us ad hominem, ask questions, give your other favorite examples of, of works of nonfiction that perhaps do what we're talking about. Uh, but thank you all for coming. And what a big room. It's a little disconcerting. It's okay. So I'm going to introduce all three panelists and myself, I guess, first, and then we'll go on. To my left, your right, Elena Passarello is the author of Let Me Clear My Throat, a collection of essays in which she asks readers whether it is okay or not for her to clear her throat. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. (laughs) I misunderstood. It's a series of brilliant essays exploring the human voice and all its many iterations. She happens to have one of the most expressive voices I've ever heard at a reading. And if you haven't heard her read, find a time machine, go back to 9 o'clock last night, Moto E Ramen Noodle Shop in Saki House. Just do it, because she's amazing. Uh, You can tell I didn't get these out of the program. Sue William Silverman is the author of three memoirs, a poetry collection, and a tremendous craft book, Fearless Confessions. For years, she has been secretly obsessed with the 1960s pop star, Pat Boone. But the secret is out of the closet. Her latest memoir, The Pat Boone Fan Club, My Life as a White Anglo-Saxon Jew, is not only amazing and fun and deep and moving, but it's also for sale right now, (laughs) but also in about an hour, at the University of Nebraska book table. Uh, Michael Martone needs no introduction. (laughs) But he deserves one. Michael was voted the best-dressed man at AWP for six years running. He has written so many wonderful books uh, across and inter and around genres, including most recently Four for a Quarter. He enjoys being drunk dial-texted by his son's friends, and he is indeed a champion. Dinty W. Moore is deathly afraid of polar bears. My idea in proposing this panel was to explore the possibilities, pitfalls, giddy pleasures, and possibly pesky legal problems involved in using celebrities as characters in creative nonfiction. For my part of this discussion, though, I'm interested not just in how we use celebrities as characters in nonfiction, how we characterize them by describing their flesh and blood human characteristics. If that is all we are up to, it actually doesn't matter whether the person who shows up in our essay or memoir is famous or not famous. We are obligated as nonfictionists to offer an accurate view of the person, their physical presence, their behavior, their odd snort of laughter. An honest account, albeit through the lens of our own experience. What fascinates me the most is when we use celebrities, entertainers, politicians, sports stars, 
famous animals, Charlie Manson, as an objective correlative. If you haven't heard that phrase since high school, let me refresh your memory. An objective correlative is a literary term referring to a symbolic article. Let's say yellow wallpaper, or a talking raven, or a bank of darkening clouds. The objective correlative is used in literature to provide access to traditionally inexpressible concepts such as an emotion or state of mind. T.S. Eliot didn't invent the term, but he did popularize it by mentioning it in an essay on Hamlet. Quoting Eliot now, The only way of expressing emotion in the form of art is by finding an objective correlative. In other words, a set of objects, a situation, a chain of events, which shall be the formula of that particular emotion, such that when external facts are given, the emotion is immediately evoked. You can find objective correlatives throughout the literary canon. The lighthouse in Virginia Woolf's The Lighthouse, the coffin in William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, the sword Excalibur throughout the King Arthur legend. But how can people, real, not fictional people, act as an objective correlative? I would argue that the idea goes back at least as far as the Divine Comedy and Dante's version of Virgil. Don DeLeo, of course, uses Oswald, Babe Ruth, J. Edgar Hoover, and many other notable figures as symbols in his novels, but nonfiction. What got me thinking about this was an essay entitled Breastfeeding Dick Cheney <laughs> by Sonia Huber, first published in Creative Nonfiction in 2011. At the heart of the essay, and it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful essay, despite the fact that uh, the title cracks me up too. At the heart of the essay is a Buddhist visualization technique, one where the meditator, in this case Sonia Huber, is challenged to visualize her worst enemy as her child. Well, Huber believes in the importance of breastfeeding, and if Dick Cheney were her child, you see where this leads. I emailed her last week to ask her about how Cheney ended up playing such a major role in her essay, and she wrote back, quoting Sonia Huber, well, I actually wasn't planning on writing this essay until the magazine called for essays about anger. I had really wanted to get a piece in the magazine, so in some ways my Cheney-ish ambition provided the initial fuel. That's part of what is surprising about the essay that she wrote. Instead of listing everything she hates about Dick Cheney, though there is plenty, she finds a startling number of these parallels between the former vice president and herself, his childhood, her childhood, his college years, her college years, his ambition, her ambition. Here I am quoting Sonia Huber again. Someone asked me where this essay came from, and I answered, surprising even myself, that I was so angry at a lot of other things going on in my life that I couldn't yet write about. So I needed to write about anger because I was swimming in a sea of it, and I needed a huge hook like Cheney to hang it on. Huber's unexpected essay relies on Cheney not just as a hook, but as an objective correlative, as a huge hook that embodies or serves as a symbolic article, in this case, for anger. Just in seeing his name on the page, we as readers bring, or many of us do at least, those of us dedicated liberals who read literary magazines, we bring our associations with Cheney, our emotional reactions to his words, his face, his action. And those reactions are the fuel that fires the origin, the engine of Huber's essay. In 2008, I published a memoir titled Between Panic and Desire. Dick Nixon, former President Richard M. Nixon, but I prefer to call him Dick, shows up naturally in the memoir because one of my earliest memories in the book revolves around the Kennedy presidency. And I remember well my childhood perception of Nixon's evil self trying to win the presidency out from under my hero Jack. 
Much of the book revolves around my college years when Nixon was president and then Watergate and disgrace and resignation. But I consciously use Nixon, too, as an objective correlative, though, to be entirely clear, I wasn't thinking that or using that term when I was working on the book. What I was aware of was that many of my readers would have instant associations with the name Nixon. Paranoia, disgust, distrust, pity, revulsion, to name just a few. So Nixon strings throughout the book, as does his daughter Tricia, and the paranoia that ran deep during the Vietnam Watergate years. And this allows me to use the reader's responses, emotional reactions, to open, I hope, into a deeper examination and exploration of what it means to be a human being who lived through those events. I'll close with a question, one I don't know the answer to. When does the objective correlative that is not a lighthouse or a raven, but a real person, cease to function? When do people's emotional reactions to Nixon, to Cheney, to Ringo Starr become too debilitated? Who is Dan Quayle, my students ask when I talk about Michael Mortone's wonderful book, Pensees, The Thoughts of Dan Quayle. How soon until they say, who is Dick Nixon? Who is Dick Cheney? The Beatles, weren't they a band of some sort? Shakespeare's work today needs elaborate footnotes, identifying real kings and historical battles that today's reader probably does not recognize easily. Is that what will be needed for the work we are discussing up here today? Will Pat Boone need to be footnoted in Sue Silverman's memoir? Well, let's hope so. That means someone is still reading us. We should all be so lucky. I love when a panelist ends his contribution with a question because it feels like a like a trapeze artist sort of, you know, and I, I just want to grab it. And that question is so beautiful. I think uh, when we write about celebrity, you get asked that a lot by editors and readers. Are you sure you want to include Taylor Swift? Are you sure no one is, anyone's going to know Taylor Swift? You, know, you want this book to be forever? Uh, my answer, of course, is, you know, I don't care if the book is forever. I just, I, I had to make the thing that I had to make. But thank you, Dinti. And uh, hi, everybody. So I'm, I'm really excited to be a part of this panel um, because it has memoirist in the title. It's like memoirist discussing celebrity. And I don't write memoir. I've, I've never really written anything from personal experience. Um, and so it's really fun to pretend to be a memoirist for a couple hours. I just think you guys are so cool. And <laughs> people pay a lot of attention to you. So <laughs> it's nice. I think one of the reasons that I don't write memoir has a lot to do with why I write almost exclusively about celebrities and it's because it's that I'm afraid of people I'm afraid of real people I'm afraid of all of you I'm very afraid of myself so celebrities provide an interesting way to sort of talk about people I think people are usually help an essay get made people like to have people in their essays so they're not all about you know architecture or something I, I know that people often say that a book sells if there's a human face on the cover so the people that I chose to write, I choose to write about most of the time, and the entities are entities of celebrity where the work has sort of been halfway done by the contemporary reader, at least, early on. Uh, another thing that I'm really afraid of is uh, success. And I think that that also ties into why I like to write about celebrity, because I think trying to encapsulate the real person that is behind the idea of a celebrity, like Taylor Swift or Nick Cave or Dinty Moore, is a doomed enterprise, right? We're not, I'm not talking about a person when I talk about Beyonce. 
I'm talking about uh, I'm talking about myself in some ways, uh, and I'm probably talking about all of you, but I'm, I'm certainly not talking about a young woman who was born in Houston, Texas, in 1983, or whenever she was born. Sorry, Queen Bee, I don't know when your birthday is. Somebody Google it. And and so for me, those those are the introductory impulses for writing about celebrity: the the fear of people and the sort of interest in exploring the essay as an exercise in doom, of, of not success. And I think that's the reason that I'm particularly drawn to writing the most inaccessible celebrities as possible. Not necessarily ones that I could, like the mayor you know, of my town that I could go interview, but someone who is long dead, someone who is very much in themselves an inexpressible con- concept. Something where I know that the reader is not going to get what she wants out of the piece, and neither am I, and we can sort of enjoy that work together. <laughs> this is such a like it's like a Stephen Wright monologue. It's just so depressing, but for me, I, I find that really liberating and super fun. Like I will never write the James Kaplan biography of Frank Sinatra, uh, but I will, in a doomed way, try to use Sinatra to talk about ideas in people, and, and I find that very liberating. Uh, I, I, I just uh, have three kind of categories of celebrity doom that I like to write about, and I thought I'd outline them for you quite quickly and then uh, just sort of tell you a little bit of an essay that I've written and how it's approached that. It shouldn't take too long. And then the real memoirists can take the stage. So maybe this is the same for many of you in here, but the first piece about celebrity that I really, that really grilled my cheese was, oh, was I say that so much that I, I, I don't even know that it's a joke anymore, grilled my cheese. My students are like, God, stop saying that. But um, yeah, and, and does any, I say this in workshop all the time. Does anybody smell what I'm stepping in? And it's completely lost all meaning, much like a celebrity. Anyway, anyway the, so the, fir- the, the first essay about celebrity that I really enjoyed is Frank Sinatra have, has a cold. Uh, I don't know if you remember... I, I'm, just, I'm sure we most, most of us know this. I, I encountered it in maybe 1999, 2000. Esquire magazine actually had it as a pullout. It was like, if the magazine is this big, there was one of those little pullouts about the size of a perfume sample, and it said, the best essay ever written. And so I was like, I think I was in like a doctor's office and something, so I just ripped it out, you know. And I was like, I'm about to read the best essay that's ever been written. I was quite young. I was, I was not old enough to drink yet. Don't do the math. And I went home and I sat down. Here we go. And I was shocked at how much of a failure that essay was. I'm sure most of us know. I, I don't want to waste your time by recounting it too much. But Gaitelis never gets to meet Frank Sinatra, really. He just follows him around uh, and watches other people interact with him for like a week. And uh, he sees in the, in the background him, the, the woman that carries his wigs in a suitcase and yeah, Frank Sinatra wore a wig, and uh, rec- watching his daughter record and making sure she gets home safely. But the, the writer and the subject are never around each other. And what Frank Sinatra did so beautifully, and of course when I was you know, 19 and I read this, I was like, you know, what the hell? I thought I was going to get all this insight. I thought this was going to be like a tell-all bio. This is the best essay ever written. And then I realized that what was so beautiful about it was the way that this writer shaded in the negative space around the celebrity and something appeared, uh, a character, uh, I don't know what, I, I, maybe a person, maybe Frank Sinatra in a way, but um, we'll never know. And so I've, I've been really interested in, in doing that kind of work and that kind of, that kind of doomed enterprise. So the, in the style of Gay Talese, I think he does three things with Frank Sinatra, and I'm only able to do one per essay. I think Frank Sinatra for him was a lost celebrity. I think he was a too big to be real 
celebrity, and I think he was a sticky celebrity. Uh, and so I'll just quickly outline what those three types of celebrity writing do for me. I love writing about a celebrity that we cannot access, usually because they're dead or because all of the footage that we have of them is through hearsay. Um, it, it sort of brings out the, the, the non-existent investigative journalist in me. I like to do my homework and figure out what evidence I have that could be used as negative space to talk about that person. And so the reader then sees me not achieving a profile, but like headbutting up against the wall of the profile. Uh, the most challenging one that I ever did for this was this essay that I wrote on Judy Garland called Judy, 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 where uh, she had a concert at Carnegie Hall about 50 years ago. It was one of her two comeback concerts. It was in 1963. And uh, it was people have a hard time describing the visceral effect it had on the people that were in that concert and the effect that it had on the listening public when that re record came out. It was the first record by a woman to go platinum. It made her the greatest entertainer in show business when a year earlier she was so sick she was having pounds and pounds of fluid drained from her body and they thought she was just dead, uh, literally, and her career was dead. And nobody really knows what happened there. They've remastered the concert footage so that you can in some ways hear, but for a long time all people had was this kind of grainy record of a woman singing in and out of tune. And you knew that the reality of what made her a star was lost. There's this tiny Super 8 footage of this concert uh, and it's, you know, as somebody who was not, not alive in 1963, I knew that that magic was going to be forever gone. Uh, so I wanted to make a piece about that concert and see if I could pull what was lost back into the world. And in doing it, I, I found out, you know, that it was an essay about other things, uh, architecture and childbirth and... But yeah, that's the, she's an example of a lost celebrity. I also have essays on the castrati. We have no idea really what they sounded like, but they were the gods of Italian opera. We, there was a, we have one footage of one castrato singing, but he wasn't even famous, and he was quite old, and he was really more of an alto than anything. But the castrati revolutionized both, both performance and composition uh, in the 18th century and 17th century. Uh, so I really enjoyed trying to understand that celebrity from this, this extreme distance. Second type of nonfiction celebrity writing that I find really energizing and helpful is to, it, it really connects to Dinti's idea of the inexpressive concept, a too-big-to-be-real celebrity, right? Um, and maybe they're all like this. Maybe Pat Boone is like this, and uh, maybe the mayor that I was talking about is all like this, but ones where they, they, there is no such thing as the person as who they are. I most recently did this for a, an anthology that's coming out uh, about Montaigne. Uh, never give yourself an essay, uh, an essay task based on a pun. <laughs> but they want Pat Madden, who I think is here, right? Or, or he was here. He was like, oh, no, Elena's reading when he left. But uh, he said, hey, everybody pick a title of an essay by Montaigne and write a new essay about it. And I saw that there were all, the, all the cool kids took all the good titles. And so I showed up, and the, like, there was like three things left. And one was like, Apology for Raymond Siebend. And I don't know anybody named Raymond Siebend. So <laughs> I picked Ceremony of the Interview of Princes. And I thought I would write about Prince, the, the god of Minneapolis. So then I was like, uh-oh, what do I do? I cannot write about this man. He's, he's not real. Even if he walked in right now, I know he lives like 20 miles from here. 
It would, I, don't know what, I don't know what would happen. I don't know what I would do. And all we get from Prince are these amazing pockets of playing basketball with Dave Chappelle and showing up on the new girl and revolutionizing the uh, you know, American pop sound, having one of the first number one rock songs that doesn't have a bass in it. He's just these, these uh, s- sort of disparate elements of crazy. And then, of course, he's terrible in interviews. He refuses. He contradicts himself constantly. I think he's downright Montanian. So for that, I, I, I think so, you know. And so maybe he's more of a sticky concept than he is a too-big-to-be-real celebrity. But uh, so for that piece, I read 30 years of Prince interviews. Uh, I was living alone at the time. And, uh, I had, had a stack this big and a cat on my lap and uh, gained 11 pounds. And, um, and I then wrote this piece. I smushed them all together into one gigantic how to, like how to interview Prince and uh, tried to just to take all of the contradictory things that he required and, and put them all together. And when, I, when it was over, I realized I didn't give you any impression of who Prince is. I just sort of showed you the way that Prince dodges character. Um, uh, and I was going to read from it, but maybe I'll just move on because I'm rambling. Uh, if you ever want to hear about it, buy me a beer and I'll tell you all about it. And then the last one, and it's my favorite one, and I think it's probably the one that's very close to what Dinty was saying, is the sticky celebrity writing project. It's when you pick a celebrity that you care about not so much because he or she or they are a person you want to unpack or get behind or connect yourself to, right, which is very valid, but because you think they will carry a concept, a metaphorical concept that means something to you. Like, if you want to write about violence, maybe it's better to find a violent celebrity and have them carry that weight for you, the facts of their life or the facts of what's been reported about their life. You could write about Mike Tyson or this baited bear that was so famous that he took tickets away from William Shakespeare in 1601 and was probably alive when Hamlet was first performed at the Globe and he was next door. Um, And that was where I found, 10 years after I read Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, my Frank Sinatra essay. Frank Sinatra, for me, is along with Marlon Brando, the quintessential American voice of the 20th century, because he is so not amazing as a vocalist. He's a man of limits, and I think that's what the American voice is all about, like establishing limits and pushing those limits, not being a diva or a virtuoso or like the castrati, but sort of pushing the songbook inside of the parameters of themselves, which is a terrible... Like, I just said that, and I watched your guys' eyes glaze over when I said that. So that's why you need someone like Frank Sinatra, because I say, you know, pushing the something of the American songbook, blah, 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 fart, fart. And you're like, whatever, when's lunch? But, But when I tell you that in 1939, Frank Sinatra, who couldn't read a note of music, supposedly wrote a 75 cent, 30 page booklet called How to Sing Like Frank Sinatra, and then I take that thing and use each page of the essay as um, uh, an entrance point into both an aspect of his life and then an aspect of popular music, talking about Smokey Robinson, Frank Sinatra's relationship with Ava Gardner, and the, the circle the mouth makes in a Frank Sinatra O. Well, now I'm talking about real, strange, interesting, motion-driven things instead of just saying... The quintessential American moment is no, yeah. Uh, and for me, that is the most freeing and the most exciting way that an essayist, maybe not so much uh, someone who works in memoir, but that an essayist drives a car of a celebrity into whatever tree he or she wants to drive it. Anyway, so, and let me just uh, close with a couple other examples of people who do this. 
and, and much more successfully than I do in a lot of respects. Hilton Owls, I don't know, he's the theater critic for The New Yorker, ALS. He also is a tremendous essayist. He's got a book out with McSweeney's called White Girls that really grills my cheese. And uh, he has an entire essay in which he speaks in the first person as Louise Brooks. But he's very much writing about himself. He's got an essay on Prince that kicks my princess's ass. And, uh, but it's not in the Montana anthology. And uh, also a really fascinating piece on Richard Pryor. Uh, I always like to bring non-fiction things into the room. So here's two playwrights that you might check out. Mickle Marr, M-I-C-K-L-E-M-A-H-E-R. Hopefully I spelled that right. Takes transcripts of the vice presidential debate between Dick Cheney and whoever Dick Cheney was up with that was moderated by, and then for some reason it's like for him it's moderated by John Boehner. And he puts them in a room together and uses it in a play. So you're sitting in a theater watching this happen and it turns into this grudge match while they're using sort of the sound, the transcript of this debate. And so the celebrities are doing this work while the actors are doing this other work. Related to that is a playwright named Lucas Nath, H-N-A-T-H, who has this beautiful play on celebrity that involves Walt Disney having like a sort of OCD meeting to plan his own funeral. Um, So please check those out, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you, and thank you, Dinti, for organizing this panel. The title of my section is called The Daily Mirror, Looking at Celebrities, Seeing Ourselves. Kim Kardashian, Miley Cyrus, Justin Timberlake. How do celebrities achieve pop culture status? What elevates a celebrity to the Mount Olympus of fame? They are, for better or worse, a part of the zeitgeist. These people are famous because we make them famous. But why? What do they mean to us? When I was growing up, one celebrity profoundly shaped my life, and that's what I explore in my memoir, The Pat Boone Fan Club. My life is a white Anglo-Saxon Jew. So Pat Boone is or was a 1960s pop music idol who sold millions of albums. He had his own TV show, he started movies, and he was sort of the shiny white buck shoes to Elvis Presley's funky blue suede shoes. And Pat Boone sang about love letters in the sand while the king rocked the jailhouse. So while I love Pat Boone's music, my crush on him went much deeper and encompassed the squeaky clean elements of his public image. Because my Jewish father misloved me, and because Pat Boone, also known as a devout Christian, offered a perfect image of safety and goodness, he was the father I imagined, rather than the father that I had. So basically, I wanted Pat Boone to adopt me. And in many ways, I still do. So in my memoir, using Pat Boone as a metaphor, I examine my desire to pass as Christian, not only as a reaction to my father, but also as a wish to belong to and fit into the waspy suburb in which I lived. So in the memoir, I write about three separate times that I meet my idol when his image became real. And so for a writer, this is sort of like having one of your metaphors suddenly sort of, you know, leap up off of the page. 
So first, as a teenager, I attended his TV show in Manhattan, where I got his autograph. Years later, you know, which would be more or less recently, I happened to see a newspaper article announcing a Pat Boone concert at a megachurch near where I live. And I attended, because who knows if I actually managed to meet him. Again, maybe I'd be able to write an essay about it. And that is exactly what happened. After the concert, I sneaked backstage to find him. And, I mean, basically I stalked him, but I, I prefer to use the word sneaked. But I, I totally stalked him. And this is a, a very condensed scene from the book. Quote, so Pat Boone and another man are just opening a door farther down the corridor. And I yell, Pat Boone. I push past the assistant until I stand right in front of Pat Boone in his white shirt, white pants, white shoes. And I say, growing up, you saved my life. And then I'm telling him about my father, what happened with my father, and that it was he, Pat Boone, just knowing he existed kept me going. Just seeing his photographs and magazines, his music, all of it helped me stay alive. And that he represented. But what word do I use? Safety, holiness, purity? Pat Boone has taken a step back away from me. <laughs> Am I acting like a crazy woman? Am I the first woman who ever pursued him to confess that her father once hurt her and that he... Pat Boone represented hope, just thinking that one day he might. Well, I'm glad to know that I did something good, Pat Boone says, that I helped someone. You did, I say. You were everything, your family, your daughters, here. And I, I gave him a letter that I'd written. This will explain how I felt. I'll write back to you, he says, after I read it. Remarkably, he did write back. And we exchanged emails and books. I sent him my first book about growing up in, in an incestuous family and my second book about sex addiction. And he sent me his books that he had written about faith and <laughs> God. One of them was titled The Miracle of Prayer. And I actually read it. Never mind that I really am a kind of Jewish, atheist, liberal, Democrat, whatever. And um, anyway, so then about a year or so after that, he emailed that he was going to be back in Michigan to give a Christmas concert, which, you know, to my Jewish heart was, yes, a Christmas concert. <laughs> and um, he invited me to, you know, come to the concert and meet with him backstage after it was over. And it was going to be, you know, near Detroit. So uh, he arranged for me to meet him in the green room so that we could sort of have a real conversation when I didn't actually have to stalk him. So, and, but it was at the second meeting with him, or actually third, that the need I had for him to be a safe, ideal father really came closest to being realized. And here's another excerpt from the book. Quote, Pat Boone points to the velvet flower embroidered on my lavender jacket. At home, he says, hanging on my wall, I have a photograph of a flower growing up through concrete. He adds, like you, your childhood, you are like a flower growing up through concrete, end quote. So although he obviously never did adopt me, he did see me, if not literally as a daughter, then in a way that my own father 
should have seen me, but had not. So, and it was only after I met Pat Boone in person that the title essay, and then subsequently that entire memoir, was born. So, really, I mean, if I hadn't stalked him in that first uh, concert, you know, that the whole book would not exist. But despite these personal encounters, I write about Pat Boone more metaphorically than literally. In that sense, the book isn't so much about Pat Boone per se. Rather, it's about what Pat Boone means to me. Now, in the book, I also write about how other celebrities have impacted my life, but these are celebrities that I've not met, such as in the essay, Prepositioning John Travolta, and another about a celebrity who, in fact, is a robot named Crow, who is star of the TV show Mystery Science Theater 3000. Does anybody know that TV show? Well, I am so, I am absolutely smitten by Crow. And the fact that the show is off the air, I just, I have nightmares like, where is Crow? I mean, I really miss him. So, in addition to Pat Boone, yes, I've had a crush on John Travolta and a robot. Which um, either I have no taste at all, or I don't know, or, or I need 30 more years of therapy. But, with, as with Pat Boone and Travolta and, the, and Crow the Robot, I use them metaphorically as well. So the book, then, is a collection of linked essays, mostly based on pop culture, that all examine from different vantage points my rather quirky approach towards seeking a sense of identity and belonging and spirituality, or, as the subtitle says, my life as a white Anglo-Saxon Jew. So celebrities, real or robotic, I think, speak to an emptiness, a longing, which isn't always filled in the real world, our real lives. Since we don't truly know these people, we make them into anything we want. We project our hopes and desires onto them. And in this way, celebrities become our metaphoric fathers or lovers or mothers or best friends or pets. And as writers, if we pay attention to what any given celebrity means to us, we are able to write entire essays or even books. So if you have a crush on a celebrity, ask yourself, what does this celebrity embody? What does this celebrity mean to you? If you write about it, you will find out. Thank you. Hello, everybody. You can hear okay? Okay, good. And uh, yes, all hail Gate Lees. And I have my white shoes on there. I'm going to do a, a paper here uh, called Cease and Desist and sort of uh, approach this from the boundary of fiction and fact and how fiction and fact interact in a, a legalistic way. And it's legalistic, so, you know, we'll get through it quickly. Cease and desist. I have always said one hasn't lived until one has received a cease and desist letter, also known as an infringement letter or a demand letter. The mixed freight consists of the law firm's name tattooed at the top of the warm tympanic page. I have been in receipt of such letters twice. 
once for invasion of privacy and once for infringing trademark. But I am hoping for the trifecta of literary CNDs, the violation of copyright. It's only a matter of time, as I've now published a story, The Sex Lives of Fantastic Four, in which I borrow Marvel comic book characters as my own. Marvel's copyrights are now owned by Disney, that is trademarked, who, for all intents and purposes, is the Mordor of copyright enforcement. <laughs> but just to be safe, this opening also utilizes a line from Donald Bartholme without attribution, and of course cites Mordor as well without paying any fees. A pause to receive any servers at this juncture. No. <laughs> Moving on. Copyright and its violation is a story for another day. I would recommend Lewis Hyde's fine book, Common as Air, if you are interested in the subject, tracing the history of the copyright up to the present paradoxical moment where we writers have never before enjoyed such legal protection of our intellectual property while at the same time are possessed with such technical savvy to get around any such barriers. Now, what is more, more on the agenda today is the first of the triumvirate, the invasion of privacy, for which I was not so much in receipt of a cease and desist order from the lawyers of a person whose privacy I had violated, but from my own publisher's lawyers who, when vetting my book, memoed a cease and desist in all due diligence in the anticipation of legal intervention by a subject once the book was published and, priva and privacy was then violated. But before we get there, I want to meditate for a moment on what I call the inoculation clause that is better known as the disclaimer which attaches itself now to media of all types. Have you ever employed an inoculation clause? Do you know the, the clause I mean? Here's, here's an example. This is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, love that one, uh, or actual events is purely coincidental. This is a standard clause. It's not copyrighted, I think, uh, ready for you to cut and paste. I love all parts of books that we usually don't give much thought to, table of contents, dedication pages, copyright pages, headers, footers, acknowledgments, flap copies, bio notes, and blurbs. Check out Kevin Jackson's interesting book, Invisible Forms, A Guide to Literary Curiosity, St. Martin's, 1999, for a discussion of the asteroid band of writing that orbits the gas giant of the body copy. The book does not include, sadly, a discussion of the inoculation clause, but my hasty research attempting to find its origin did turn up something interesting. Uh, I actually always trace it back to... Um, uh, Look Homeward Angel. Um, Wolf knew that the book was going to excite a lot of people in Asheville, North Carolina, and the inoculation clause was sort of sent out there to sort of try to keep that, tamp that down. And that's, that's everything I found out while reading the clause, suggests it was deployed as a wishful charm and legal prophylactic against libel 
and not so much privacy violation. In any case, it turns out the spell is not much good in either case. Um, it doesn't work. It, doesn't, it won't stop a suit. It won't ward off a cease and desist or actual action, but it might mitigate the damage once one is sued, but that too is another story. My story, the one that raised alarms in the vetting of those lawyers, was a fiction, fiction in the form of a monologue delivered by a world-famous, I thought, swimmer, Mark Spitz. Who knows Mark Spitz? Now, that's interesting. I mean, it, it is that problem that's already come up of uh, using a character off the shelf, say, but what is the uh, expiration date on that fame? Um, so you know Mark Spitz. So I used Mark Spitz, the swimmer Mark Spitz. My fear going into the project, a book filled with monologues delivered by many famous and real Hoosiers, was that they were, they were you know, armed for libel more than uh, they were libel for libel that I might be open to an action because I was monkeying around and thereby damaging someone's famous, famous reputation, or as we now say, brand with malice aforethought. That's libel. I not only hurt the person or his or her reputation, but also it was my motive to do so. You will note that the disclaimer's first line of defense is to declare a work a fiction, in my case, thinking in terms of libel, I even established a subtitle on the book, Alive and Dead in Indiana, as stories and elsewhere as fictions. I was, yeah. The first lesson is just by calling something, of, something a fiction does not, for lawyers or the law, matter in terms of libel or invasion of privacy. Change the name, dye the hair, add 20 pounds to the character, it doesn't matter. Anyone can sue. It is easy to do so, and if a, comp a complainant feels that the fictional character is based on him or her, well, there's not only dramatic action, but also actual action that can be had. <laughs> there are two things that prevent an invasion of privacy case, difficult to be brought. First, if you are dead, you have no right to privacy. And second, if you are famous, you have, in essence, given up your right to privacy when you trade yourself as a public person. Movie stars, politicians can't call foul in the media once they have used that very same media to create the characters that they are. With Mark Spitz, I found that I was in a delicious paradox. I had imagined the swimmer, now years after his Olympic triumph, practicing dentistry in Venice, California. I selected that profession for Mark Spitz. He was really a real estate investor because most people I knew who knew of Mark Spitz, when asked what they thought he had become, they thought he had become a dentist after he retired from swimming. Interesting. The meme had circulated in a take-it-hold because Spitz had appeared on a Bob Hope special in the role of a dentist in a skit, as he had just recently enrolled in the Indiana University Dental School post-swimming. In reality, he never attended dental school, but the idea that a famous swimmer was now a dentist held sway in a public imagination for a particular amount of time. 
Did any of you, knowing Mark Spitz, now think he was a dentist? Yeah, I totally thought he was. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, completely not real. That's a fiction. He never attended dental school, but the idea that the famous winner was now a dentist held sway in the public imagination for some time. In the story, I hedged my bet. I didn't name the famous ex-swimmer, now dentist. So Mark Spitz was never uh, named. Instead, at one point, he says to a patient, say my name into the bowl. Uh, When the lawyers... When the lawyers, ceasing and desisting, said I would have to cut this story for fear of privacy invasion, I said, first, this is a fiction. How can I invade the the privacy and rights of a fictional character? To which they responded with fact. Fiction doesn't matter, and then went on to say, quote, we believe this character is Mark Spitz, and that he is no longer famous enough to be immune from taking action, a whole later interesting argument about that uh, constitute, or what would constitute a public figure famous enough. The joke was they believed this character was Mark Spitz because he was a dentist. <laughs> but, 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 I said, Mark Spitz is not a dentist. That is a fiction. I mean, I said, a real fiction that everyone believes is the truth. It doesn't matter, they said. It doesn't matter because these matters are not an issue of statute, but, uh, statute, but of uh, law that is litigated at individual trial. And the way it goes depends upon the judge, the lawyers, and the particular waffle in the current zeitgeist. For me, Mark Spitz, in quote, could be seen behind my disguise of uh, could be seen behind my disguise of fiction, and he was no longer famous enough uh, to be allergic to the right of privacy. The story was to be deleted from the collection, and it was. But wait, there's one more recourse, and that is to gain his permission to use him as a character in my fiction. I could ask his permission. I asked his permission. Well, my lawyers talked with his lawyers, and he said, no. (laughs) So I ceased, and I desisted. Thank you. I don't know if any of you have read Eulabis' new book, but I'm curious now if she had an inoculation clause. Um, and I'm going to make one other dumb comment, but it's true. I'm writing a book about religion now, so I spent Easter weekend at the American Atheists Conference in Memphis, Tennessee. Easter weekend. The atheists know how to, how to give it back. And the creator and one of the actors from Mystery Science 3000, that's what they do now. They do, they do stand up at atheist conventions. <laughs> so you don't want to be a Christian. I wonder if anybody out there has a question, comment, an example, something you'd like to have us explore. And I'm going to repeat the questions because the AWP is recording this, I guess.
1977, I was a college senior at University of Pittsburgh. Woo, Go Panthers! <laughs> and I was the student escort for Nelson Algren, and he wanted, I, and I was excited, and I could not imagine what excitement we would have. And he said he wanted to go buy some boxer shorts. So yes, that's non-fiction. Uh, thank you. So the question is, hypothetically though, I guess it isn't hypothetical, uh, if you knew a celebrity before they became a celebrity, you went to high school with Prince. Um, <laughs> What are, the, what are the legal ramifications of talking about their, their private lives before their lives became so public? And I don't know if you know this, but right after dental school, Michael Martone got his legal degree. <laughs> Any ideas on this? Oh, well, le legally, I don't think that, that matters as far as invasion of privacy. If the person is famous at the point of the publication, there's no way there's an action for privacy because that person is famous now, um, even though you may have known that person at a time in both your lives when that wasn't the case. But at the time, I mean, what's, what's litigated or what's talked about is the publication. The invasion happens with, with you bringing public another story of a person's life. I found it incredibly, I mean, I knew about libel where you're actually actually using a person either famous or, or not famous. I mean, that's the other case. The famous person still has recourse to libel because you, you're using his reputation uh, or her reputation against what he or she has worked so hard to actually create. But privacy is another thing that completely took me by surprise. And it does have to do with the way the world is at that particular time. Another, uh, another example of, uh, from that book was a monologue delivered by Colonel Sanders, who was a real person, but he was dead, giving up his right of privacy. But in the monologue, he says to his wife, um, goodbye, I'll see you later. And she says, goodbye, take care of yourselves. And the lawyer flagged that and said, can you substantiate that she said this? And I said, no, I cannot substantiate She said, they said, cut that line. So it isn't a matter of having them uh, be in a bad light. It's just a matter of actually putting words in the mouths of, of people without their permission. You've invaded their privacy. So. You, you may need to consult an actual attorney yeah. who works, with, who works oh, in publishing. Well, you know, I mean, the, is, the other thing about question. this is all of, I mean, you know, uh, if you're a fiction writer and you've used your used your sister, <laughs> and if the sister's pissed at you, yeah, she, anybody can bring suit. I mean, that's the one really sort of frightening thing, but really don't stay up at night thinking about that because it's very rare that it happens, uh, especially, especially, I think, with privacy. But sometimes, you know, one case can get the entire, you know, publishing are lawyers really nervous about that? Because there's two rights, the right of your free expression and the right of our privacy. Who? I'll, re I'll, re I'll repeat the question for the audio. Somebody name redacted uh, <laughs> did, did something that uh, action redacted. 
that the gentleman, the gentleman in the room is wondering, can he write about that? Because this, this someone is actually quite a celebrity right now. Yeah, I mean, but the other part of that is if, uh, remember, the lawyer did ask me, can you substantiate she said this? I mean, again, they were taking a fiction and moving it into a kind of nonfiction um, sourced way. That's one way. And the other way through that is if you could ask you know, permission from that person, then that's fine, too. I just want to what, underscore One that. other thing is to write about a celebrity who really isn't a celebrity anymore but really still wants to be a celebrity. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Pat Boone is, like, so thankful to, that anybody is even thinking about him. And he said something to me like, gosh, my name is actually on a book. And it's so heartbreaking and beautiful. And, you know, the only people who are talking about Pat Boone now are like at AWP or wherever. <laughs> so, you know, because I'm, I'm not all together at all, you know, like in praise of Pat Boone. I mean, I say some things about him that really he, he wouldn't like, but he's read the book and he's just so grateful that he would never consider suing me. I mean, he's just, you know, gosh, somebody still cares about me. So that's your other option. Do you have to worry about the estate of a dead person suing? No. I mean, not for privacy. Again, trademark, yeah, now, it's, now it, an estate will come after you, but not, not the right of privacy. Yeah, if you were to write that Colonel Harlan Sanders put poison in the chicken, then, yeah, that would be... Yeah, right. For li libel, but, yeah. Yeah. Certainly if, yeah. Certainly if what you write is going to cause a person, or especially a large major, large major, a major American corporation to lose money, then the lawyers might knock on your door. But I want to underscore what Michael said. It almost never happens. Yeah, I mean, and also, it almost never happens, and when it does happen, it... it it can break either way because it depends also on what's happening in the larger culture at that time. The famous case is um, uh, Miss Wyoming versus Penthouse in which uh, a Miss Wyoming uh, who was blonde and a baton twirler showed up in a story in Penthouse. And she brought suit saying, I believe this person is me, and they did this without doing that. And Penthouse said, no, it's not you. It's somebody we made up. It just happened to have blonde hair and was a baton twirler. And she proved, in, or, you know, she argued in court that, in fact, this was based on me. Then, um, you know, there are just as many cases where someone said, I believe this character is based on me, when the, the court said, no, it's not, we don't believe it. So it's, ne it's not a hard and fast law. It's always going to be argued, and it just depends on the way it's going at the time. Because the other right is incredibly important, too, our ability to, you know, to the right of free expression. In the striped shirt, we'll, we'll get to the, the front rows, too. Well, it, it, we're into sort of second-order <laughs> imagination of famous I, again, I, I didn't go into it, but I thought, I thought that was an interesting thing in my particular time with the lawyers, which is the designation, and again, it's something that has to be litigated, the designation that Mark Spitz was a famous person, but now is not famous enough. And so 
you brought up you know, the idea that there's sort of second-tier and first-tier fame. I, I think it's an interesting question that we live you know, in this culture that, that makes a distinction between the public and the, and the private. But again, there's no hard and fast rule. It's all, you know, I'd say go ahead and do it because that's our job as uh, writers is to find where that boundary is. And as, as Dinty said, the pushback will come, you know, if you do hit a nerve at a particular time. But it shouldn't, you shouldn't, in anticipation of that, ever stop yourself from, you know, if that's where the story is going or where you want to go. Then that, you know. I, I, I thought... When I wrote this, I thought, oh, don't do that, because everyone will get really nervous. And, and really, cease and desist orders, it's great to get one. It really is. Uh, I mean, because somebody's reading something. You know, you, you get so, you don't get stuff back, you know. The law, but you just have to remember that the law reads in a different way. I mean, just the same thing with the, the, those lawyers made no distinction. And we here at AWP, we argue all the time, nonfiction, fiction. No distinction. This thing, you know, we're going to fact check this whether we call it a fiction or not. Or not. That's interesting to me. It won't stop me from actually doing it, but but I'm now what more engaged in the play of doing this because I've had this experience. Two two things quickly. One is we welcome questions that aren't about fine points of legal yeah, right. uh, <laughs> litigation. Uh, secondly, the more Michael talks, the more I realize. In, in my books and, and published essays, I've done everything that we're not supposed to do and nobody's right. ever come after me. You know, Trisha Nixon shows up in a ridiculous uh, way in my book uh, that uses Dick Nixon. And, and Trisha's, you know, very much alive and the lawyers probably should have taken that chapter out. But I don't know. It's, it's an odd judgment call. To, to deflect just a little bit um, away from that, I, I wanted to mention a book that... It, it, does anyone know Leo Brody's Frenzy of Renown? Uh, which is a literary history of the emergence of fame. He, he contends that the first famous uh, celebrity is uh, Alexander the Great because it's the first human where other people actually had an image, since his face was on a coin, uh, the image of Alexander the Great they carried around with them. So he was perhaps, or his argument is that's the first famous people. But, but it... It goes into, you know, we use a shorthand, famous or public figure now, but it's an interesting history, too. Um, I was really wondering if we could hear some of that prince. <laughs> <laughs> well, the University of Georgia Press is putting out After Montaigne. When is it, Pat? And oh, so grab a flyer. I'll read the first two sentences. Do not call him on the telephone. He often insists that he does not own one or that he does not know his number. He is permitted to call you any time on a phone he presumably borrowed or just found lying around somewhere, and Lord knows you will answer him whenever he does. So that's all. <laughs> that was useless. Oh, thank you. Um, it's going to be a really cool book, this Montaigne anthology. Who, are you in it, Dinty? <laughs> Dinty is... Dinty's not famous enough. <laughs> but the, the, it's, a, it's an amazing concept. Apparently the, the, the essays are going into lots of different fantastic places. And Dinty probably was just busy or something. I think one of them is actually about you. I think on some verses of Virgil, they just... Uh, I'm totally making this Uh-oh. up. Yeah. Uh-oh. 
From all, I'm also editing a book which, where we take Montaigne's essays and uh, <laughs> if anybody would like to be in it, see me right after this. <laughs> we're we're going to publish it next week. Um, the, the, this, this person's been very patient with her question. Actually, I don't think there's, I think the pitfall if is if they're not an icon, because an icon is usually not very complicated. I mean, the underlying human being is complicated, but our vision of them is not that complicated. So Elena can, can kind of count on how people react to the character of Prince, the public face of Prince. I can pretty much count on how at least people of my generation, 10 or 15 years in either direction, react to Dick Nixon. When that person is not an icon and is much more complicated, then you don't know how your reader is, how that person is functioning as a symbol or objective correlative. So part of it is, you know, is, is yes, if it's an icon, probably that prob you're probably safe. Now, I'm not talking about legally now, we're, we're talking about liter in literatures. I think, uh, I think it's really interesting, like with Colonel Sanders now, uh, I, most of my students think of him only as a cartoon. And so it would be sort of interesting to sort of trace that um, half-life of decay of fame. Like Duncan Hines, real person. Pretty much a cake batter now. <laughs> I mean, Duncan Hines was the Martha Stewart of his, his day, but that's completely gone from a collective consciousness. So I think that's a, a huge pitfall. In, and you get a, a great boost when you're writing because it's a kind of mythology that everyone has already the story of this person uh, in, 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 your, in your mind, but there is a, a degradation you know, of, that, of that knowledge uh, in the community as it, as it goes on. And I, I've, a pitfall that I've experienced is getting too close to the celebrity. I, I'm mm. sure, Sue, this isn't the case with you because you, you went and met Pat Boone and he, he launched your piece, but most of the celebrities I like to deal with are either reclusive or dead. And uh, when I was doing the Judy Garland essay, I started, I wanted her to narrate my book on the human voice. And so she would just show up in between the essays and be like, hello, lovers. <laughs> Would you like to go on a tour of my esophagus? Do nothing till you hear from me. And I, I, you know, I listened to every Judy Garland interview I could. I watched all of her variety show. I thought I had done my homework to be able to embody the voice of this person. But it was way too close for her the, to do the work that I needed her to do. She meant something larger, and I was trying to make her mean something smaller. And I had to back away and talk. I had to lease it. You know, I had to sort of talk about everyone around her in this moment that we didn't have access to because it was way too false for me to use her as a vehicle uh, in, a, in a sort of first-person direct way. I mean, I think it, it really depends because, like, with me, I mean, the Pat Boone book really would not exist if I had not met him. I mean, because I really had to follow that sort of childhood desire to have him adopt me and what he meant to me. Whereas, you know, when I wrote, say, Prepositioning John Travolta, it wasn't, I did not ever have to meet him to, to write about, you know, what he sort of meant to me at the time of, you know, Saturday Night Fever and wanting to be a, a, a disco dancer or whatever. I mean, really, it was just, it was about my own confusion. I, 
I should say I absolutely cannot figure out prepositions. And so in the same way I cannot prep figure out prepositions, I could not figure out my life at that particular time when John Travolta was most famous. So I was able to use that kind of as a metaphor. And, you know, with a robot, you know, falling in love and wanting to marry a robot is very safe. You know, there, he wasn't going to ask a lot of me. And so, um, sexually, emotionally, you know, what are you going to do with a robot? So, I was, <laughs> this answer is not going in the direction I had first anticipated. But, I've got a battery here if anybody. <laughs> but so, you know, but, I, but basically, I mean, I was, I was madly in love with this robot, but I clearly did not have to meet a robot who wasn't alive anyway to, to sort of get at the metaphor of, of that because I was go- sort of going through a bad marriage and a divorce at the time, and Crow, who lived on the satellite of love in outer space, and I wanted to live in outer space with him. I mean, it just was such a safe place to be. Yeah. I'm also really realizing, though, at the same time that we're all talking about find an iconic, famous person, let the energy of how you imagine, you know, the re- you feel confident the reader, what the reader attaches to that person, but then we kind of end up writing against it. I mean, Dick Nixon yeah. ended up being my father, um, you know, a, a, a consoling figure to me of a certain sort in my book, certainly in the Dick Cheney essay that I, I referenced by Sonia Huber. Um, she ends up realizing how much she and Dick Cheney have in common, especially the Dick Cheney who was in high school, you know, a Dick Cheney we don't know. Sue, you know, happens to be uh, not born into a Christian family or white Anglo-Saxon. She's, you know, she's, she was born Jewish. So when, and, and then she meets Pat Boone. So, you know, the reader's expectations are built up when you put a celebrity face forward. But if all you do is repeat the stereotype we think we understand there's not much energy to the writing so a lot of it is discovering what you know that's what essay writing is a lot of it is discovering that what you didn't know and and found along the way is much more interesting than what you thought you knew yeah i mean the thing about pat boone is that i mean he is you know very conservative republican tea party member loves sarah palin you know I voted for Obama and Clinton. You know, I mean, I'm just really a liberal Democrat. But so the challenge was to find the humanity between just Pat Boone, sort of a person, not a celebrity, and just little old me, and to be able to overlook the fact that, you know, we agree on nothing, but that, you know, he could see me as a person and I could see beneath that... Every, you know, just everything that I don't agree with him ab- about, and just noted that he really did see me as a flower growing up through concrete, and to just be able to connect on that one-to-one level. Well, so he gave you an enormous gift because he was kind. Yeah. It's like we you know, tea party, you know, hated hating. Well, yeah, that, that was that was the how the book came alive. Yeah, I think that the that it's almost as a project of recovery. With Dan Quayle, if I say I wrote this book about Dan Quayle, almost the first reaction I always get is, oh, you mentioned potato. Mm-hmm. And nowhere in the book do I mention potato because it's already in the mind of the reader. Mm-hmm. But what interests me about Dan Quayle was not the actual public persona that was there, but the sort of poignancy of the fact that he was, he, a human being, fellow Hoosier, was trapped in that persona. 
And in some way, I thought of it as a kind of work to recover his own privacy, uh, you know, his own private, and, and what it was to be always second, to always be misunderstood, to be now the, the fame that he thought he was controlling was now, in fact, controlling him, that he had been labeled and branded as a buffoon, and he would never be able to get out of it. And so I was like, I'll write your memoir for you. I'll, I'll you know, I'll make you human again. So that's, a, a, you know, an interesting thing. Superhuman to human uh, is the move, I think, sometimes when you're doing that. Got time for one more. When, if you've had an encounter with a famous person and you're writing about it, is it just opportunistic? If all you're doing is saying, hey, reader, look, I met Pat Boone, then it's like, okay, good for you. You know, I, I met the monkeys. Um, <laughs> I did, I did. I, 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 was, I, was, I was 10 years old in a men's room at O'Hare. Mickey Dorlenz and Peter Tork on either side of me. True, true story. But, you know, that's just a story. That's a story I tell people. No, in bars and, make, and make them laugh. There's no discovery in that. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Pat Boone is I really wanted to explore what he meant to me. And the only way I know to explore that, you know, really is, is through writing. So, if it, it, so it becomes more than just an anecdote, you know, that I stalked him and I met him backstage. But I really had to understand both sort of who he was beneath the sort of the Pat Boondom of Pat Boone, you know and whether he could respond to me and then, you know, really sort of go back and, and, and really, you know, explore what sort of growing up that desire to be, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Jew meant. So it's that exploration, which is sort of at the heart of memoir anyway, is that journey that the narrator takes to, you know, to, to understand more about him or herself. So thank you, Elena Passarello. Thank you, Sue William Silverman. Thank you, Michael Martone. Thank you to a wonderful audience. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.